Welcome to Swordnet Radio. This is a system spotlight for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. We're going to go into a bit of detail about the rules and give you some tips on how to interpret the rules and how to run a good game. Any questions, comments or feedback, please get in touch with us at swordnutradio at gmail.com. That's swordnutradio at gmail.com. Hi there, I'm Alex. I've been playing quite a few games for Sword Not Radio. I've been playing for Fifth Ed, D&D, been playing in Inspectors and in um, Fate as well. And Alex has been GMing the Blue Planet stuff we're doing. We've not been recording that. No, that's um, it's been my first go ever sort of DMing, so I was a bit nervous about it. I didn't want it getting recorded. Yeah, that, that's fair. That is fair play. And uh, I, I think we're, we're, we're trying to break the game as hard as possible. But we'll talk about that in a, in a in a sum up. So we might do a system spotlight on that. So this is a fairly new game out, but it's one of the oldest games out as well. So it's going to be a bit weird. All right then, can you sum up Fifth Ed for me in one sentence? It is the granddaddy of all fantasy role playing games. That's it. That's that's D and D. You want to play fantasy role playing stuff? Start with D and D. By that, I, I don't mean that it's the best one out there. It's just, it's all of the reference... That, it's you know, it's all of the tropes, reference. isn't it, of yeah. what makes a modern fantasy story. Yeah, and not necessarily the story, but also what you'd consider to be the mechanics coming out from it without knowing anything about tabletop RPGs. The things that you will have in your consciousness at that time will probably be from D&D. It's in, it's almost impossible to sum up in one sentence because it's got such a, a, a vast history to it. But yeah, that's that's what I'd say. It's this is fantasy role playing. What's the basic gameplay mechanic? Okie dokie. So the basic gameplay mechanics. I, I had to sit and have a think about this for D and D because you get very caught up in it. The the base mechanic is that you have a twenty sided die, and you, you very sided dice uh, are, are called D and then a number. So a twenty sided die is a D twenty. Uh, an eight-sided die is a d8, that sort of stuff. So you have a d20, and you roll that number to do what's called a check. And there are three types of check. There is a, a combat roll, so it's, um making a check if, to see if you hit something. There is a skill roll, so it's a check to see if you can succeed at a skill um, or, or a, a field of knowledge if you know something. And uh, social things as well, so to see if you can convince someone of something. You'd roll the d20. And then you add modifiers to that based on your character. So you roll a d20 and you might, let's say you want to roll something to uh, hit someone in the face with an axe. Well, it might turn out that you are rubbish with an axe. So you get a minus to that. So you you roll a die and you take something away from it. It might be that you're really good with it. So you roll a die and you add to it. So the person running the game will have a target number in mind and you roll for that. So the modifiers are also based on uh, spells that you might have, abilities you might have, or the circumstances you're in. Sometimes you have advantages or disadvantages, and the the advantage-disadvantage rule, which we'll talk about later, is pretty core to 5th edition. So in terms of D&D as a whole, this is the first time this has come up, but it's it's pretty core to the whole experience. What's inspiration and how does it work? Okay, inspiration is a method by which the dungeon master gives you basically a point or a little bead or some, some sort of counter or just says you've got inspiration. And it's when you do something awesome or you do something that screws over your character because it is in character. So anything that is 
moving the story forward or is um, creating interesting wrinkles in the story. So not necessarily doing the optimum thing all the time, but doing what your character would do. Um, I generally do it when people are d doing cool things at the table and, uh, and amusing me and, and doing interesting things. And what it is, is a point that you can spend to give advantage to yourself or anyone else. And the idea is that when you get it, you should be using it within about five minutes. You should never really hold on to them because you tend to accrue them out of combat and in combat is when you need them. So um, it's, uh, let's say, uh, you decide that uh, there is a there is a harmless, helpless goblin in front of you, and you decide that your character would not simply execute that character or let that happen. So you have to tie it up, or you have to bring it with you, or something like that that is going to act to the detriment of everyone there, but is going to create interesting situations to roleplay against. Mm. So have some inspiration, or two characters have an in-character argument. Have some inspiration because that's cool. You know that's. That's some good thinking there. You know, that's that's getting into character. Have some inspiration. You spend it, you get to roll with advantage on anything you want. And that's that's inspiration. Advantage and disadvantage apply to any D20 roll. So that's combat, exploration, or social interaction. You roll two D20s, take the higher result, that's advantage. Roll two D20s, take the lower result, that's disadvantage. And one of the core rules of D&D going all the way back and, and iterated through this is that there are a load of general rules, but wherever you have a specific rule, it overwrites the general rule. So if you've got a general rule saying you can't hide in plain sight, and you have a skill that says you can hide in plain sight, that's specific, it overwrites it. And the last mechanic to go into is something that's gone into almost every game now. Uh, that, that you'll have ever played every computer game, every tabletop game is is uh, the idea of experience points, and that characters progress through earning experience points uh, either by solving problems or by killing monsters or by doing other things. Is that all right? Is that, the, yeah. is that too much? No, that's fine. <laughs> so um, you mentioned the advantage disadvantage mechanic. Um, yeah. What else is unique about Fifth Ed from all the others that came before it? Well. That's that's an interesting way to ask it, actually, because if you're going to talk about what's unique about D&D, &D, it's, it's basically the first thing out there. So it's first published in the 70s, so it's got this real depth, a history, and a, and a, a, a culture to it. Not just the culture of you know the in-game settings and the history of, of the in-game stuff, mm. but the actual players. So, you know, if, if you... If you go to a, a meeting of geeks and you've got a t-shirt that says Thacko on it, you know, there's going to be a set of people who recognise it and understand what that is and hark mm. back to those days of D&D. That's, that's kind of what's unique about D&D is, is that depth of things to it. And there's so much material out there, whether homebrewed or officially published, because it's been going since the 70s. And there's, there's a huge amount of material out there. And even if you're playing in second edition, third edition, fifth edition whatever you like you can pick up any part of that you know vast back catalog and, and pick it up and apply it to what you're doing you might have to tweak various things on it but you can apply it you can get inspiration from it mm. um as D and D as a whole i think it's it's the plethora of rules and it's it's not to say that it's over complicated some editions were but 
it that when they tested for, and this is probably a thing brought out in fifth edition most of all, is that when they were playing this in the, in the playtests and and really running it through, and this spent years in playtests to really sort of bottom out what it is people like about D and D, what is it that that brings people back to D and D, and it was a case of you would you would ask fifty different people and you'd get fifty different answers, yeah. even things like uh, what do you like about uh, the dice rolls, what do you like about the mechanics of, of rolling dice. And you'd get people come back and go, well, we don't even use dice in our D&D game. And like, um, okay. And, or, you know, we just, we just use an average roll or we just, <laughs> we just have a static thing to it or we just go with the narrative and that's it. And mm. the narrative is what rules. And then there's people who go, well, I like the, the, the really strict maths about it. I like the, you know, it's really hammered down, you know, what, what bonus you get for what. Um, like in, in third edition, for example. There were so many different bonuses and so many different advantages and disadvantages and ways that you could get bonuses and feats and ways you could build characters that made it a very, very rules-heavy game. Mm. And whatever you wanted to do at all, there was probably a rule for it. So it was you know, all the way from the, the top end of people. Well, they've tried to capture that. So you get all the way from the from one end where you've got people who don't like rules at all they want the rules to get out of the way of the story and just give you enough to make it interesting and at the other end people who want to essentially play a board game but with a bit of flavor so everything has a rule and if there's not a rule you can't do it kind of thing and fifth edition i think uniquely has brought all of that together and said do you know what here's all of these rules if you want to use every single damn one of them they will all work together but if you don't then you don't have to and I think that was, that was one of the best things. I mean, just mm. leafing through the Dungeon Master's Guide, the core mechanics of how to, to play it. I mean, it doesn't start telling you about roles and rules and things like that until well into the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, it's, it tells you about the world that you're in. It tells you about how to, how to write a story, how to, to figure out what's going to happen next. And it gives you random tables to roll on before it gives you rules. You know, the actual how to run this game mechanically section um, in its lightest possible form is maybe about five pages long. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you go into the, the free rules PDF Dungeon Master's Guide, that's it stripped down. And you go into it and it's about sort of 30, 40 pages long. And of those, most of them are taken up with monsters because they give you enough monsters to run a basic game in it. So it's, it's it's incredibly simple to run, but if you want a rule, you can have it. Yeah, you can sort of take it where you want to go, really, can't you? And I think the random tables thing is, is really... It's not something unique to this edition, but it is something that they brought back. Fourth edition is like a computer game, and it, it's very much... It's balanced, there are powers that you use, everyone has powers... A fighter has powers, and a wizard has powers, and yeah. all that sort of stuff. And it's it's quite prescriptive in that in that sense. It's very combat orientated, and they tried to get away from that. And I think that's why they did the, the big play test and say, no, we're going back to what D and D really is. And they came up with this utter freedom, and uh, people ended up liking this idea of optional rules. They ended up liking the idea of random tables mm. because it was the the thing that everyone got nostalgic about. You know, as a DM, it wasn't a case of 
oh, you know, this game enabled me to build this monster that was this kind of thing that I really like that. It was, you know, or when you ran out of ideas or something and you and you had nowhere to go for it, you just like, you'd pull open your second edition books or your first edition books and roll on a table to see what happened next. And like, I think very famously in first edition, there was a random harlot table. <laughs> it had a hundred different kinds of prostitute on it. <laughs> it, was just, <laughs> it was like to that level of granularity. It was just insane. So... Um, in the new DM guide, they've got ways that you can generate random things. They've got tables of artifacts, tables of spells, tables of dungeon types, tables of terrain types, villains, personality types, NPCs. Absolutely everything is is there just to, to give you a bit of a help, to give you a prod. You know, when you're running out of inspiration, it's a thing to insert to then give you something to run away with. Or, if you like, you could do it entirely randomly. You don't need to plan anything. I've got here Appendix A, Random Dungeons. This is awesome. <laughs> so, starting area, you roll a D10. So, what is it? It's a rectangle that's 80 by 20 feet with a row of pillars down the middle and two passages leading um, from each long wall. There you go. <laughs> Immediately you're starting. And, okay, what are those passages like? Well, there's a table for that. How wide are they? There's a table for that. You know, what yeah. kind of door does it have? There's a table for that. And that's just on, that's just on one page. And that's like half of the things on there. So the truly unique thing, I think, about this edition of D&D, as opposed to everything else, is that they have tried to go back to everything that D&D generated for 40 years, condense it and distill it into this spirit that they've put into this book, which I think they've done really well. How do you go about making a character in Fifth Ed? Okie dokie. The character creation is a little bit bitty, but um, has a bit more story in it than previous editions. So, okay. The first thing you should always do when you're making a character is talk to the DM and the players. So let's keep saying DM, I haven't to explain that. It's Dungeon Master. All right. In most other games, it's called the, the Game Master or the Storyteller or something like that, but this one's the Dungeon Master. So the most important thing for you to do is talk to your group. You'll see a lot of cases where you want to join a game and the Dungeon Master just goes, oh yeah, just create a character. But it's really best to talk about what kind of group you want to do. Um, you know, It's no good having a group full of Dragonborn sorcerers if what you're going to be doing is wading into open combat all the time. You, you kind of need to, to sit down and, and talk about things. Like, you might really want an idea, you might have a cool concept for a character and class, but the best thing to do is is sit down and talk to the players, talk to the DM, and, and come up with it between you, because you want something that's going to work as, as a group. Once you've decided that sort of thing, you pick a race, and in D&D there are, at the moment, not that many. The first player's guide, the player's handbook, they have published um i think the the core races from D&D past so elseworlds humans are halflings gnomes they included dragonborn because they're really popular from fourth edition tieflings i think they they were come around in third edition they were very popular based on that that will start generating some statistics you also pick a class now those classes come with stats so what do we mean by races and, and so race kind of makes sense in itself, in itself. um race in D&D basically means species and it doesn't necessarily mean that those races can't interbreed, but there aren't many half-breed stat blocks out yet. These are things that Dungeons & Dragons will come out more and more with. 
But you pick a race, you pick your class. Your class is basically your profession, your job, your the way in which you get down. So that would be things like cleric, paladin, fighter, rogue, uh, druid, magic user. So I keep saying magic user, um, uh, wizard. Magic users from from uh, basic edition. <laughs> Didn't even make it through to first edition. Um, and those things end up coming up with stats as well. And it's just sort of things that you're good at, things that you're proficient in, skills that you are you are better at. And then you pick a background. And that in itself has stats as well. So more skills that you're good at. And you, you kind of have to flick back and forth, either to make sure that you're not double booking things or to, to make sure that you're... Um, picking things that will work well enough together. And you know what? Even if they don't work well together, that makes an interesting character. The first or last, depending on your, your viewpoint, thing that you should be doing is putting out your core stats. And what I mean by core stats, um, it's six statistics of your character that describe what they are like generally. So you get strength, intelligence, wisdom, charisma, constitution, and intelligence. And all of those things have mechanical implications for your character. You can do that by having a standard array, so a standard set of numbers, of which they have uh, a couple of suggestions for in the player's handbook. Or you can roll for them. The method by which you roll them is that you take four d6s, so four six-sided dice, and you roll all of those. You take off the lowest one, so you don't count that one, and you add up the remaining three. So you can have anything between three and 18 as a stat. So that runs the gamut between every possible range of normal human, I say human inverted commas, normal, the normal human range sits in that. So if you had, let's say, let's say you had an intelligence of three, you know, you wouldn't be able to do anything. Most animals, for example, might have intelligence of three. So you would be feral. You'd have no language. You wouldn't be able to read and write. You would, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't really be able to communicate other than basic emotion. Same, same with, th- with a strength of three. You would, you simply wouldn't be able to get up and do anything. You'd be bedridden. And at the other end of the scale, 18 is as much as you can reasonably get as a human being. So it's, it's the peak of physical fitness, the peak of intelligence. So a theoretical physicist, for example, would have an intelligence of 18. You know, that, that, that is right at the top of the range. So people who can invent their own maths if they have a problem. Are, you know, have intelligence of 18. Likewise, if you've got a strength of 18, you are the strongest person most people will ever meet in their entire lives. That kind of thing gets kind of abstracted when you talk about charisma, which is the, sort of the main social skill, mm. or wisdom. So how are you, how are you wiser than anyone else? And it, but it does tie into various skills and things. Most classes, um, or most races, are pretty class-neutral. There are some races that are just better at being a certain class than others because they get bonuses to, say, intelligence if you want to be a wizard. That's worth picking up. And most classes have a single stat or two stats that they will need to key off. So as a fighter, you would really want strength to be your highest stat. Or maybe dexterity. And you'd also want a fairly high constitution to give yourself a load of hit points, a load of health. Whereas if you're playing uh, a rogue, you'd want dexterity to be your highest, uh, and maybe intelligence as well. Or if you're playing a cleric, you'd maybe want, well, you definitely want wisdom to be your highest stat. Uh, and again, maybe strength if you want to play a cleric who hits people, or maybe constitution if you want to soak up a damage, or dexterity or something. 
something else to sort of flavor how you want to be but there's no right and wrong really about it if you want to play a weak fighter who is good at other things then that's fine again just talk to your dm about it so those two methods of generating those stats an array or rolling them which one's better uh, you just have to agree at the table what you're going to do. And you can always cast aside stats that are useless. If you get nothing but sixes and eights and stuff like that, mm. then you know you, you can cast it aside and start again and maybe just go, do you know what, I'll just take an array. But you also get the opportunity to go into proper beast mode where you <laughs> can have an 18. Like if you take a standard array, you're probably not going to have an 18. Or if you have an 18, you're probably going to be pretty bad at lots of other things to sort of show that your your character has specialised in something in their life and has really gone to that beyond all other things. But if you are rolling for it, then the chances are, uh, with this roll four dice and subtract the lowest, chances are you're going to get a pretty decent spread. So I would always roll for it because that makes things interesting. So once you've got your, your class and race and your core stats sorted out, you've got skills. Now, your class and race and background that you've chosen will contribute to those skills. These are things that you're going to use out of combat mostly. It's stuff like, do you know things? Are you able to do things? This is an important part of how you're going to operate in the world. Fifth edition has this thing called proficiency now. So instead of having a bonus and you sort of, you buy more and more bonuses with, you know, with whatever resources you have, you have just a flat proficiency and it just says, are you good at that? And that's it, done. If during character creation you get proficiency in something twice, say you have a, a class that's, let's say um, you are a cleric and you take a, an acolyte background, what's going to happen is that you're going to become proficient in religion as a cleric, and then with the acolyte background it's going to give you another proficiency, and those stack. So you'll become specialised, so you get double bonus there. And what this means is that all of your skills are based on your core stats. So for religion, for example, it would be based on wisdom. So what would happen is that you'd look at your wisdom stat, that would give you a bonus, and you would add your proficiency to it. And if you're specialised, you add your proficiency to it again. So what that means is you don't necessarily even have to write numbers out. You just have to know what your main stat is, and then are you proficient or not. And that proficiency you'll get, um, that goes up every four levels, I think it is. Um, so, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so you get used to it. You get used to adding, it's plus two for the first four levels of your character, so you just get used to adding that number. Or you write the number out and it's fine. <laughs> now, the next thing that you do when you're creating a character is you've got to kind of look ahead at where you want to go with it. And again, this is where talking to people, talking to the DM, talking to the players, really goes with this. Because the the character classes are actually spread out over the first three levels. So by the time you've got up to level three in a, in a particular class, you have really narrowed down what it is you want to do with that character and the direction they're going. And it's, it's also so that you, you can't choose one level in every class and go, oh, okay, I can do everything now, I'm brilliant. So you kind of come into it slowly. The, the prime example of that is the fighter. So the first level you pick a fighting style, so you obviously you know have force before mm -hmm. and... So you pick a style that you want to be good at, and then that allows you to use certain equipment, gives you certain bonuses. Then at second level, you get a couple of bonuses, but there's no biggie about it. But then at third level, you get to choose the archetype that you're going to follow, and this is what they're called, archetypes. So 
let's say as a fighter at third level, you get a choice between three different archetypes. So you get to start flinging spells around as what's essentially a sword mage, and they call it a eldritch knight, I think it is. Or you get to be the battle master, which is someone who gets to do lots of different types of maneuver, or command other people to do things. So it gives people extra moves. Or there is the champion, which is a pretty simple, you just become a lot better at it. So uh, it's easy for you to hit things. It's easier to hit things and have a bigger effect. Hmm. Uh, and it's it, it's simple to run. And you end up getting more actions. Yeah. In the, in the campaign that we've played, me and Adam, we were both playing fighters and we both went for the champion archetype, didn't we? Well, you went for champion. I think he went for it to start with. And Did he change it? No, no, yeah, it's, oh. it's, um, in the, in the adventure is written, you're both supposed to become champions. Mm. But I gave everyone the choice, and Adam went with, uh, Battlemaster. Mm. So he ended up coming up with things that would allow him to roll to parry something, uh, so if something else. Oh, no, yeah, him, no, I remember him doing that now, yeah. Yeah. Whereas the, the champion, that basically got me a critical hit on, um, both a 19 or a natural 20. Yeah. On attack rolls. That's so, what that did. So yeah, it increases your chance to do a huge amount of damage. And I think, you know, as you, as you go up in levels, it, you know, that gets added too, but you've chosen your path at that point. Some characters have to choose straight away. So, um, a cleric, for example, has to choose kind of what god they follow, but they mm. don't have to choose what path they're going to walk. So you get things like they choose what's called their domain and whether that's going to be the life domain and they're going to concentrate on being a healer or whether it's going to be the death domain and they're going to concentrate on dealing damage or all sorts of other things. So you've got three levels to kind of make your mind up. Some have to start straight away um, and that's it. You're done. So your sorcerer or your warlock, for example, the sorcerer has his, uh, an origin and that is you know, where does your magic come from? So you're not going to figure that out over the three levels, you know, story-wise. It's there or it's not. You know, that this is where it comes from. That's it done. And it's you know, dragons or is it um, just a, a chance happening in the world? And the warlocks, again, their powers come from somewhere. Their powers come from uh, some sort of powerful creature, a demon or um, a fiend or some fey creature or a um, like like a like an outsider type creature, think think um the the old ones from Lovecraft. Mm. But that has happened already. You know, you don't you know, if you if if you were a, a warlock and you're choosing your your origin after three levels, that's then that's what the campaign has to be about. That's how do you find this demon and get your powers. That's and so yeah, it, yeah. it's not like that. So it has to come first. And, and the reason it's got to do that as well is because fundamentally it's a role-playing game. It's not a computer game. You don't just get a stat bump. You don't just get um, a level-up bonus and then instantly you're there and that's it done. You can play it like that. You, you actually can do that. But it's much more interesting when, you know, as a wizard, you level up, you get two extra spells. Oh, I just write down these two extra spells. No, no, tell me how you figure those out. This is something important about your character, you know. Yeah. Um, or, you know, as, as, as a fighter, how does, um, a, a champion become a champion? How is it they get better at this? And, you know, could it just be a confidence thing? Could it be, I've now done this long enough and I've survived and it's been terrifying, 
But now I've have I have a moment to think about it, and I've decided I have survived. I must be good at this. I'm going to own this shit, and you know that sort of stuff. So yeah. so the the character advancement and character creation can form a very large part of the story, and they should. Can you tell me a little bit about how you start a game? Okay, dokie. So when you're starting, the dungeon master creates a world and describes it to the players. And that's how the Dungeon Master is kind of introduced in all of these things, in all of these books. That you create this world and you narrate it to the players. In reality, you don't have to create a world of whole cloth. You, you can just do it bit by bit. Or you can use these things to roll randomly and all that kind of crap. So don't worry about it. Then what you need is a plot hook. So you've got a world. What are the players going to do in it? So you need something that gets the players started. And from there, they attempt to accomplish a shared or individual character goals. So, hence talking to people beforehand, you should know what character goals are. You know, what, what do people want out of these things? You accomplish those goals through the three pillars of RPGs, and that is exploration, social interaction, and combat. And everything you do in an RPG can be tied to those three things. How does exploration work? Okie dokie. So exploration is mostly narrative in in the sense that your players will say, I want to go over here and do this. And the dungeon master will say, okay, you go down there and this is what it looks like. So, you know, I want to go into this cave. Okay, well, this cave looks like a natural cave and you go further in and there starts being tiles on the floor or something like that. And so the DM will tell you what it is that you see. And you can use different aids for that. So, for example, you can use tiles, um, you know, pre-made tiles. You can draw your own maps, things like that, and give those to the players. But mostly it's it's theatre of the mind. It's, it's done mentally. And there are optional rules for exploring. So you can have different weather. You can have different terrain. So obstacles, essentially, that, that make things difficult. You can have characters making skill checks to discover things, so making perception checks uh, to, to find traps, maybe... Um, to find hidden doors, things like that. Or they can be outdoors and they can be making survival checks to try and not get lost. Mm. Uh, or nature checks to try and feed themselves. Or survival or nature, na- uh, survival or nature checks to try and feed themselves or to track something and to, to accomplish that goal. So the idea is to always keep things moving along. If the players are doing it narratively, and that's fine... But if they're not, maybe make them make a role to get things going, get them thinking about what they're doing. And you can handle dangerous areas, dangerous things or, or conditions as conflicts between the players and the environment, with the players using their skills through the narrative to roll against the target number set by the dungeon master. Um, I'll keep calling it, saying this target number. It's, it's called a DC, which is a difficulty class, which is something inherited back from past editions of Dungeons & Dragons. It doesn't make much sense to call something a difficulty class anymore. But it's the DC, and that's the target number, and that's set on how difficult the Dungeon Master thinks it would be for an ordinary person to overcome that thing. Exploration is sometimes where the big delays come in, especially if you put a door in front of people, because they'll sit there and go, right, okay, I've played games before. Um, I know that when I open a door... Um, all the monsters on the other side of that room are going to charge at me. And if I close it, that's that door done with. You know, that, that's that room done with. Um, they're not going to come through that door. That's where Dungeons & Dragons is different. Is that you don't have to have anything going on. You don't have to have any rules other than what you think, as a DM, that would be in your world. 
you know, if you walk into, you know, if you've got a, a long, a long room with corridors on either side and the players are going, oh, I'm going to kick down every single door that we go in here. Well, okay, to start, <laughs> they're going to get a sore knee and make them have a sore knee, give them a, a, a penalty to something. But you can have a room which has nothing in it. And as a DM, you go, oh yeah, there's nothing in there. They're going to spend the next 20 minutes making every possible check they can to search that room because they'll be convinced there'll be something there they're not seeing. You know, I go in, I roll perception, I get a one, well, there's nothing in that room. Well, I roll perception, I get a 20, there's nothing in that room. No, right, come on. But <laughs> think about it like Star Wars or um, Blade Runner. It's the used future, it's the used environment. You know, if you've got a great big castle with a corridor down it, chances are every room is used for something. You know, and you've got these random things to roll on. Or you can just make it up. You just go, okay, this is a deep dungeon, or um, this is a, a tomb of this, that, and the other, and, and you, they're looking into every little nook and cranny. Put little things in every nook and cranny. You know, let's say, um, okay, you're walking down this, this tomb and the, the walls are cracked and chipped and whatever, and you're just trying to explain the flavour of it, and they go, I'm going to check every crack. Okay, well, you, you check this crack and you find a small pebble that's warm to the touch. And no matter how long you know you spend, you know it's always warm to the touch. And let them figure that one out because it's just something you figured out at the top of your head, and let them worry about what it is. It's nothing, but they'll obsess about <laughs> it, and it might give you somewhere to go. So that they might start um, obsessing about this thing and making loads of checks, and you might just it might just amuse you. So you see where it goes. So exploration is is one way that the players can lead the narrative pretty well. So one of the other three pillars you talked about was interaction. How does that work? Okay. So social interaction is an iffy one. A lot of DMs when they start are a bit scared of social interaction because it means you have to play the non-player characters or NPCs. In a typical computer game, you know, a MMORPG type thing, you you would you know these are the quest givers. These are the people you know the uh, who staff the towns. It's somewhere where you can you can start thinking, oh god, no, what do I do? No, they need to speak to this particular person, so everyone else has nothing to say. You know, like you know, I'm just going to take uh, World of Warcraft for example. Is if you talk to the wrong NPC at the wrong time, they will just sort of fob you off all the time. But if you're going to walk into a town in an RPG setting and start talking to random people, that's the beauty of it. You could be talking to the right person straight away, and because the DM has got no time for this, so you're just going to yeah, whoever you talk to first, that's going to be the right person. Or you could start talk. You just there are tables again to roll on, or you could have um, a list of NPCs there to go. Right, uh, that this person's going to be surly. This person's going to be late for work. This, you know, whatever. Um, and you just go down the list, and you can lead players on a on a great big wild goose chase, and it's often a lot of fun. And again, they they can start leading by by what they choose to focus on. They can start leading the story. But in practice, social interaction is the PCs interacting with NPCs. Most of it will be done through dialogue, just talking to people. Every once in a while, though, the players are going to have to use their skills to influence the situation. So whether that is rolling on, say, insight to be able to read a person, to to get a good idea of whether they're telling the truth or not, or they might roll something like a streetwise check or a... You know, a general wisdom check or a general intelligence check to get the lay of the land, to figure out who it is they should be talking to, to save themselves time, or maybe to convince someone if they want to roll a persuasion check on someone to, to try and talk them round. 
And the, the idea is that that's a, a target number. It's, it's a DC that the DM will set to say how, you know, how well have you have to roll on that. Sometimes, though, the NPCs will have their own stats. As a DM, you, you kind of make these up on the fly, is that you just decide who this person is, how wise they are, what, you know, and thus determine what their wisdom score would generally be. You don't actually have to write out a complete character for all these NPCs, but it helps to have a number in mind. And you could have what's called a contested role. So if you're trying to convince someone of something, so persuasion, um, your character would, would roll that persuasion. And the person you're trying to convince, if they were trying to not be convinced of that thing, would roll a wisdom check to, to try and sort of maintain their own influence on their own mind. Sometimes, though, and this is, again, one of these brilliant optional rules, you have a social combat. And you can set, just like you've got health for regular combat, you know, how well you can take being hit in the face with an axe, you might have a social kind of health. So that, um, and you, you can roll these up on the fly, depending on, you know, what the characters are feeling like at the time. You know, have you ate, have you eaten lunch? Did you get a good night's sleep? That sort of stuff. And just go, okay, right, well, this person's got 10, this person's got 8, because the person who got 10 had a good night's sleep and feels pretty good about themselves. Done. And you can start knocking down that health to convince someone. And every time you roll and make a roll, you're framing an argument. Um, admittedly, that's a fairly new thing for D&D. And generally, you are looking at a single roll. And you don't have to do silly voices. You know, it's fun if you do, but you don't have to do silly voices. As long as people know what character is talking when. Especially if you've got several NPCs at a time, just make it clear. So can you tell me a little bit about the combat mechanics? Okie dokie. So rightly or wrongly, 5th edition kind of focuses on combat a fair bit. Most games tend to get very complicated around combat because it is a complicated thing. So whereas if you're exploring a dungeon or you're talking to a character you know, through the DM, it's done at the speed of plot. So uh, you want to cross this 25-mile stretch of land to get to the next village. It's all on a road. Fine, okay, you do it. It takes you a day. You arrive later. Done. Or you might want to say every couple of hours make a roll to see if something waylays you on the road or whatever. Mm. But it's done at the speed of the plot. It's, it's what is going to be interesting at the table. With combat, that's done in a very specific way. So each combat is split into rounds. Those rounds are six seconds long. And it's all supposed to be going on simultaneously. But it's kind of it has to be abstracted out, so everyone has to take their turn. Otherwise it just becomes unmanageable. So what happens is that everyone makes a check based on dexterity to determine what order everyone goes in. That's called initiative. The monsters do that as well. There's a couple of ways of doing it. There is rolling for the entire group, or there's rolling for the individual. Generally speaking, um, it saves time to roll for one sort of monster as one block. So if you've got five goblins or one hobgoblin, roll once for the goblins, once for the hobgoblin. That's the sort of the recommended way of doing it. Any ties that happen are always in favour of the players, and if the players have the same number, you go to the person with the highest dexterity score. Mm -hmm. So once you've got that initiative order, each turn, each character or monster has a pool of movement, which is expressed in feet. So you might have 35 feet of movement, and in that six second period you can use that much movement. So you don't have to move all at once and then do something or do something and then move. You can move, do something, move, and if you've got an opportunity to do something again, move again. Okay? Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, you could move five feet, do something, move 20 feet, do something else, and then move another 10 feet, and, and that's you sorted. You also have what's called an action. So this is something like uh, an attack using an object, making a skill check to do something, or doing something to help someone else, or to hide. There are, in fact, a complete list of those things um, in the player's handbook. You also have what's called a bonus action. A bonus action only happens in certain circumstances. So once per round, you get a move, you get an action, you get the opportunity to have a bonus action. Um, that bonus action could be something as simple as drawing a sword or um, opening a door. Or it could be something that a spell tells you can do or an ability says that you can do. For example, doing um, a weak healing spell for a cleric would be a bonus action so that you don't have to choose between healing someone and smiting the monster next to you, you can do both because your attack is an action and your healing spell is a bonus action. But you only get one of those per turn. The, the, there's an easy way to, to know what a bonus action is, and that is it says. If you have something that tells you it is a bonus action. If it doesn't tell you that, it isn't one. You also have, once per round, a reaction. Movement, an action, and a bonus action are all done on your turn. But a reaction can be done at any time. And again, it's really specific. They're not very common, um, especially at lower levels, but they're really specific to say, when this happens, you can use your reaction to do this. A common one, for example, would be if you've got um, a fighter who's very skilled with a shield and is quite high level. You can use your reaction when one of your party members who's adjacent to you gets hit to interpose your shield and take some of that damage or to stop them getting hit. Or if you've got a spell, as a, a wizard, for example, the shield spell is a reaction to getting hit. So um, it's you sort of, by reflex, have this thing that goes up instantly, so you can do it off your turn. A lot of high-level monsters have reactions as well. Dragons, for example, have three reactions per turn, I think. Unless I'm reading that wrong. Um, so they're pretty deadly. So what do you do once you've got this these moves and actions? Okay, a move is a move, and, and it's reasonably simple. When you're moving, you are going in a direction. You can move through your allies, because they will get out of your way. You cannot move through a monster, or an enemy, rather. Let's, let's lose enemy rather than monster. You can also shoot past your allies. So if you've got a bow or if you've got a spell going off, you just say, ah, duck. Okay, and I can shoot this off. There are optional rules for shooting into into melee or shooting through lots of people, because that, that can get interesting, but it is optional. But the one thing that isn't optional is a thing called an attack of opportunity. And that is a reaction. Okay, so this is the one reaction that everyone has available to them. It's optional whether you want to do it at the time or not. You don't have to make that attack, but usually you want to. And that is when you leave the area that is threatened by an enemy. Let's say you have a goblin next to you, and they all decide that they are losing this combat and they want to run away. So that goblin turns and runs. If he doesn't do it in a way that you know, negates an attacker opportunity, and it'll say so specifically if it does, then you get a free attack at him. So you get to make a, you, you get to make an attack at that uh, enemy. And likewise, if you decide that you're tangling with something that you don't want to tangle with, and you decide to, to retreat and move a long way away, then you're going to take that attack, because you're basically turning your back on them and running and just sprinting. So there is a moment where they have a moment to attack you. And if you're doing it past 
a whole row of people, let's say for some stupid reason, you want to, to run past an entire row of enemies. Every time you leave the space that one of them threatens, then you will get attacked. You run past seven, seven enemies, you get attacked seven times. So this is where we're going to talk about actions. So an action is you doing something. It usually involves either making a roll or giving up your ability to do something else. So it is the thing in that six second round that you are doing as well as moving. So the most common thing is an attack, and that is that you roll a d20. So it's a, it's a it's a check, it's an attack check, an attack roll, to see if you hit something. So you roll a d20 and add whatever modifier it is. It's usually strength or dexterity. So if you, if you have a melee weapon, it's usually strength that you're going to add to it. If you have, uh, say, a ranged weapon, it's dexterity to to make sure you're you're on target. If you are trying to do a spell, for example, that requires you to roll to hit, then it's usually how good you are at spells, so it's your spellcasting ability uh, plus your proficiency or something like that, and that's that's statted out for you as all spellcasters against a target stat, and that is that target stat is usually armor class or AC. Armor class consists of the protection, whether natural or applied, that that enemy has. So whether they're wearing armor, whether they've got naturally tough hide, it also factors in their ability to dodge, so their dexterity. So if you match or beat that target, then you get to hit. And that's a binary statement. You either hit or you don't. So then what happens is, if you have hit, you get to pick up some other dice that's specific to your attack, to your weapon, or to your spell, or whatever it is you're doing, and you roll those to determine the damage. And again, you'll be adding something to that based on your character. If you hit someone with a sword, for example, then you will probably be adding your strength to that damage. But you can also use your action to help someone. So you give up your attack. You give up being able to do something to just give an advantage to someone else. So you could say, I'm going to distract this opponent. I'm not really going to go for any targets or whatever, but I'm going to distract them. So they've got to think about me rather than my friend over there who's going to stick in with something pointing. And there are a lot of things. I'm not going to go into everything you can do in combat because we'd be here all day. That's that's one thing is, is that you roll a thing and see if you can do a thing. Some things are the other way around. <laughs> and that is the saving throw. Now this mostly applies to uh, spells which have an automatic hit. It is assumed you will get hit by these things. If you are in the area that this affects, you will get hit. Done. Nothing you can do about it. But you can maybe negate some of that damage. So you have what's called a saving throw. So, for example, um, a dragon's breath weapon that has a very large area and you can't really do anything about, let's say, the, the chlorine gas cloud breathed out by a green dragon. You are going to get hit by it. It's just going to envelop you and you can't not breathe for the entire length of time that that's going to be around. It's going to be around for a while. So you get to make a saving throw. And that is, uh, but it's, they're all based on your six core stats. What happens is that there is a flat value for that attack. So the dragon's flat value for that it becomes the DC, the difficulty class that you're rolling against on your saving throw. So let's say it's a 15, which is pretty hard. You would roll to see, uh, and then it's a constitution saving throw, so you would look on your constitution saving throw thing on your character sheet, and it would tell you whether it's got proficiency or not. So you would roll and you would add your constitution bonus, and if you're proficient, you'd add your proficiency bonus. And sometimes you might get even even more 
uh, bits and pieces on that. You know, like uh, dwarves, for example, have advantage on rolls for poison, so that would count. And what they usually do is halve the damage that you're taking. Sometimes it completely negates it. Um, so, for example, a charm spell, uh, where you're trying to convince someone to join your side or even take over their mind directly, and they roll a wisdom or an intelligence saving throw, it just doesn't work. They shake you off. You tell us how um, the advantage and disadvantage mechanic works. Ah, okay. So we've kind of avoided it <laughs> for too long. So the advantage and disadvantage is the new rule for 5th edition, and it's brilliant. So what happens is that in your standard set of dice, you should have two d20s. When you have advantage or disadvantage, you roll both of those d20s. You roll two d20s. If you have advantage, you roll those and you take the higher number. And if you have disadvantage, you roll them and take the lowest number. And that applies to every time that you would roll a d20. So it can be on anything. It can be on a saving throw. It can be on an attack roll. It could be on a skill check anything at all where a d20 would be rolled. So something that determines success or failure, you get another go at it, essentially. But you have to roll them both at the same time um, so that it's not just a re-roll. that make sense? Yeah. Cool. When does this actually apply, like, the whole advantage-disadvantage thing? That can be a very long answer or a very short answer. So you, you've... I've already talked about characters having advantages and disadvantages on various things, and that does mean that you have advantage in terms of that rule. And that is basically the be-all and end-all of how that rule applies, is does the dungeon master, or can you convince the dungeon master, to consider that you have advantage or you have disadvantage? And that's when it applies. Some things, though, um, have advantage and disadvantage attached to them. So some of the things uh, from the player's handbook, just to go through, uh, would be um, if you are stealthed out, if, if you've made a hide check, if you've, if you've done a check to, to hide from a particular enemy, then you have advantage on any attack roll to the enemy because they can't see you. If you fall prone, for example, you would have disadvantage on any melee attack that you made or in fact any attack that you make, because you're on your ass and you're not in your natural environment. Mm. Um, however, because you're prone, anyone standing next to you has advantage to hit you because you can't get out of the way fast enough. If they are trying to shoot at you, if they're trying to send something at you in a ranged attack, they actually have disadvantage because you're a smaller target, because you hit the deck. So you don't really have to remember all those things because they are narrative I mean, you could write these down. There's not a lot of them. Uh, and, you know, there are products out there to, to summarise things and have in front of you, like, Dungeon Master screens and things like that. And uh, they gave me a card sleeve prompt to plug myself. But really all you have to do is figure out, well, does that mean they've got an advantage? Does that mean they've got a disadvantage? Yeah, that's it, done. And so you could have all these different things going on. You could be someone who's hidden and prone and then figure out what advantage they have based on that because... There's um, an automatic gun that sort of trains on you and whatever. So, like, you've got disadvantage, you've got advantage, advantage. No, right, on balance, do you have advantage or not? Do you have disadvantage or not? And that's what you've got to figure out, is on balance, what's going on? Now, that opens up a vast, vast world of flavour. 
Because as a player, you could just play your character straight and go, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. This says I have advantage, so I have advantage done. Or you could choose to say, do you know what? Um, I'm going to, I'm not just going to aim to hit this guy. I'm going to aim to hit him in the eye. That's what I want to do. So if it hits him, it's, it's a one shot kill or it's um, an instant critical hit or it's something, you know, something that's going to really, you know, change the game. It's, it's going to give them disadvantage on everything because they're blind in one eye or whatever. So, okay, brilliant. You do that. Once upon a time, there were rules for a cold shot like that. You know, you'd get a, a negative four to your roll or whatever. Okay. This time, well, that's hard. Have this advantage. That's it. Done. Um, or you might say, um, I want to uh, convince this guy to give up his life in this town and join me as my loyal retainer. And that's not his job. That's not what he does. And so, okay, make a really good argument and roll with disadvantage because, you know, you're, you're up against it. You, you have to overcome a lot of things for that. But if you could say, I'm going to try and get the high ground here, or because we're you know we're both attacking this one guy, um, I want to try this weird thing that distracts them, so I get a cheap shot in. Uh, well, okay, make a check to see if you can do that based on whatever skill, and based on the result of that, do you have advantage or not? Okay, um, advantage disadvantage clears up so much math; it's unreal. Uh, and players like rolling dice, so it's, it's a good rule to have. Uh, advantage disadvantage does apply to enemies as well. Is that reasonably clear? Because I, I know that advantage yeah, it makes sense to me. Is, yeah. so, <laughs> but then again, I, mean, I already know what you're talking about. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like some people have a lot of problem understanding the advantage disadvantage rule. Ultimately, it comes down to is it cool? <laughs> you know, that's it. <laughs> done. I haven't talked about critical hits. Actually, we talked about combat. But we didn't talk about crits. A critical hit or a critical miss. Um, if you roll a d20 and you roll a 1, that's a critical miss. Generally speaking, it only applies to combat. If you're doing social interactions and, and all that sort of stuff, then there's no reason rolling a 1 would say uh, on a perception check would mean that you're blind. That's It doesn't happen. If you're a character who is generally good at perceiving things, you'll have a good bonus to it. That that bonus applies no matter what. It doesn't make sense to... you know. To say, oh, I rolled a one. Um, yeah, I don't know where I am. No, come, you know, you've you've got a plus eight bonus to your perception roll. So yeah, you've got a nine. It's reasonable. Yeah, you, you see stuff. You just don't see that that ant crawling away has a, a gold sigil on its back. You know, whatever. But in combat, a one will always miss, no matter what bonuses you have. A one will always miss. If you roll a twenty, that's a critical hit. And in combat, it means that it will always hit. It always, always hits. And it will hit for, and this is an optional thing, it'll either hit for maximum damage, so if you're rolling a d10 and adding 5 to it some, or, you know, for some reason, um, then you know, let's say you've got um, an axe, and that axe has a damage of d10 plus 5. So you roll a d10 and add 5 to it as normal. But if you roll a crit, if you hit with a, with a 20, it would be you just take the maximum. That's 10 plus 5, is 15 damage. The other option, which is, I think, more fun at the table, is that that d10, you roll it twice. So that damage dice, if you or if it's 2d6, you roll 2d6 twice, so 4d6. And then you add the modifier. The math works out the same. So basically it works out that 
if you just take the max damage, you're taking the average roll that you would get if you're rolling two damage dice, two sets of damage dice. But if you're rolling two sets of damage dice, you can do either very little damage, or you can do a whole hell of a lot. Mm. So uh, that makes it kind of more exciting. It's an interesting thing that taking the average roll is also something you do on virtually anything. So if you don't want to use dice, you just take the average on everything, and it's up to you to talk it up higher, which I quite like. I quite like. All right, so um, you've um, GM'd and DM'd your fair share of games. What would be your um, tips to get the best game that you can get? Um, well, I'll try and keep it to fifth edition. Okay. But it's when you're talking about that sort of thing, you're always talking in general as well. You're always talking about general role playing stuff. Um, I would say that don't be afraid to look things up if you really want to know how it goes. But also don't be afraid to just say, as a DM, for now, let's do it like this, and then I'll figure it out later. Because you don't want to stall your game too much. Mm-hmm. Like if, it, if it's an easy thing to look up and you know where it is, you just need to remind yourself, then look it up. That's why that's why Dungeon Master screens are good. They're a, um, a folded piece of card that you put up in front of yourself that you can look over the top of and see what's going on. And it has a piece of artwork on the front, but it has lots of tables and rules on the inside for you for your reference. And if it's it's a matter of going, okay, okay, there is a thing, then that's the thing, okay, yeah, that's how it's done, right, brilliant, move on. If it's going to take much longer than that, make it up, but tell people you're going to make it up. And we've talked about you know, starting the game with what kind of game you want to run and talking to people about what kind of characters you want to do. That really is the most important thing about D&D. It's a social game, so continue to be social about it. If you have if you have characters who you know, or you know, if you have players, sorry, who aren't enjoying the game, talk to them about it. Where you know, what do they want to happen with their characters? What kind of playstyle do they like? Um, you know, if if there's if there's problems happening at the table because one person's getting too much um, spotlight, then talk to people about it. It's that is, I think, the be all and end all of having a good game, is is continuing to talk to people about it. Um. And that's that's a good thing just to sort of do at the end of a session and say, you know, let's wrap up. What do you think? Right. Um, or, or just make make sure that you've got time at the end of session so not everyone's running out of the room so that people can say things that they want to say. Uh, and it helps you have a good time as well because it, it means you can just sort of stop and shoot the shit. Um, also, for the DMs, everyone's got a story, it seems, about a DM who was just a hard ass who was out to kill the players. And that does happen. You know, um, DMs who just want to kill the players and kind of make them suffer and all that. And those people are called assholes. Um, as a DM, it is your job to get the players to do cool things with their characters. And there's nothing cooler than overcoming huge odds or doing something that's really, really hard that has cost them and has made them plan and has made them think and has made them engage and has made them emotional and invested um, so that when they're taking down that that boss enemy, it's not just it's a hard fight, which can be a thing, but they've had this whole lead up to it that has made them care about it. And you can only do that by talking to them about their characters out of the game and saying, what do you want to happen with this character? You know, what is important to them? How can I engage your character in this story? Um, 
But that is, that's every role playing game, I think. And, and, you know, don't be afraid to talk to people and get ideas about the story itself. You know, you don't have to keep things secret, you know. There's, people are pretty spoiler insensitive, really. Because you might say to them, well, I have this idea where I think you're actually going to go off into this wilderness and you're going to, um, you know, meet loads of civilizations or whatever it's going to be. And then it's going to change entirely from that. You, you're going to be fish out of water or whatever. And they might be cool with that and, you know, be cool with how that's going to go. But you're thinking months in advance there in terms of game time. It might be, you know, days or weeks in terms of the actual world that you're playing in. But at, at the table, that could be years away. So it might never go there. <laughs> You know, your players mm. will change the story for you by just doing stuff, and that's the joy of it. So, as long as they feel engaged and they have some say in how this goes, that's that's going to do you fine. Um, if they feel like you're all, all that's happening is, is as a DM, you want to to play cool monsters and um, and and try and take out parties kind of within the rules, then they're not going to enjoy that. Or maybe you've got a crew that does like that. Maybe 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 they like. Um, combat stuff and don't like the actual role-playing element of it too much and you know that's cool but you need to know that um so there is tips for a good game is kind of (laughs) yeah uh it's difficult to say this is how you're going to have an awesome game um but as players as well bring ideas bring um Bring inspiration to it and invest in your character as well. Um, because uh, the hardest thing in the world is to be a DM for people who don't care. So and you think, well, why am I doing this? And you realize, I don't have to do this. So that's it, done. So um, have have the idea of, you know, you're, you're collectively telling a story. And if that story isn't something that's engaging you, or you notice it's not engaging someone else, you talk to them about it. And and you say, well, I notice, you know, you're not you're not as into it, you know, is that have you just got stuff going on in life, you know, is like are you a bit distracted or like, you know, and at that point you have to be their friend, you know, like someone's yeah. having a hard time. You can't have a go at them for not making your game interesting because life is more important. Bringing that ideas to bring those ideas to the DM or saying, I read this cool thing in Dragon Magazine or wherever the hell it was, you know, here's this thing or uh, like yourself, I mean, you you looked at um, Blue Planet. Mm-hmm. And that setting itself is giving me ideas for if I ever wanted to do something aquatic. You know, yeah. it's, it's not necessarily here's a game and there's a mechanic that we have to explore through that. You know, that that setting through that mechanic, you can say, well, I'm just going to draw inspiration for that, or just talking about books you've read. You know, it's um, ways that that characters do things in books might give you an idea. So that 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 kind of just just be sociable, and that stimulation will improve your game. And learn when to shut up. <laughs> uh, it, it is a thing people like to sort of, people like to talk over each other and you go, oh, I've got this cool thing I want to do, right? I'm going to say that. And you just sort of talk over people. And I, I know that's the thing that like, I do it myself, like, and, and you start talking, you realize you should stop, but you're kind of, your mouth is still moving. Um, but it's a skill to learn and like any skill you need to practice. But, if if you're the sort of player who has loads of ideas all the time to get things moving, then what will generally happen is the other players will stop making suggestions, and you'll feel like whenever you stop, whenever you as the sort of the 
the active player stops making suggestions. It's just silence their table. But they need to then practice making more suggestions. So you need to you need to let the silence go. You need to say to yourself, yeah, I could think of awesome things to do here. But you know what? I do that all the time. And, and then this is a collective game. You know, if I just want to do stories about me all the time, I'm going to go write a book. And that's what you should do. You should go and be an author because you've got awesome ideas that need to get out that don't involve other people. So that's, you know, that's fine. Go do that thing. But if you're playing a role-playing game, other people need to be involved. And that is the joy of it, is what do you bring from other people? And you can do that by being quiet. Or by whenever, say, someone says something you think is cool, you say it. You don't just enjoy the moment. You actually tell them, like, at the time or afterwards, that was cool. You know, when you did that thing, yeah, that was that was cool. Or, like, something that, that gets you emotionally invested. You know, like, someone's got something in their backstory that comes up and they go for it. Um, like having an in-character argument or um, describing how their character breaks down in a, in, a, in, a, in a very sort of, you know, fluffy emotional way that you might not have done yourself, but you thought was good, that you thought was creative of them. Say so, you know, reinforce each other. And specifically for D&D, I, I would say don't presuppose a result. Too many times you get players who, who will roll a one and go, oh, well, never mind, I'll roll a one, and then move on. But there's more to it. You know, own the failure. It's not a binary position. It's a D20. And technically, yes, it's a binary fail or succeed on all these checks. You know, do you do it? Do you not? But there is so much more to it than that. Very often as a DM, I'm rolling a D20 or I'm rolling two D10s to, to get an idea of how things are going. You know, um, how friendly is this NPC going to be? I'm just going to roll a die and if it's, if it's reasonable. You know, where where it lies tells me where on the friendly spectrum they are um or how well they're going to take this thing that you're saying is i'm just going to roll a die and see hmm. um it's you know it's not a binary result it's it's how well or how badly does it go so um you know you could roll low and still have fun with that um i think i was i was talking to mike on um the the wrap up that we did for fifth edition uh, lost minor Fandelva starter set and i was saying to him you know on a uh, on a attempt to persuade someone you could roll a one and you just go oh well it doesn't work but his idea was you know, to, to give that flavor was to be uh yeah it doesn't work and they're mad at you or um you know the the, the situation deteriorates rapidly and go no you roll a one and they do what it is that you want them to do but they will never talk to you again and they will spread rumors about you. You know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So you, um, or, you know, you, you want your, your, your brother who runs the town guard to do a favor for you and look the other way. And yeah, he'll do it for you, but you do not ever speak to him ever again. And that's, you know, that is an avenue closed. It's an enemy you've made, that sort of thing. So it can be so much more than just, I walk into a room, I roll a one, I don't see anything. That 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 sucks, and the DM might be adding numbers. You know, they they might be giving you all sorts of bonuses. So never just say, "Oh, I I roll this um, last time. I rolled a fifteen to hit this monster. This time I rolled a fourteen, so I obviously miss." No, you might have hit because something might have happened that you're not aware of. Something might be going on that you're not aware of. So always give the DM all the information. I think it is is the best you can do. Mm. And if it's 
Some people only fall into doing what their character is good at or what's written on their sheet. So I think when when Adam uh, when Adam Baxter um, we started calling him Biddy now because we've got two Adams and his nickname is Biddy, so we might as well use it. Um, so when when Biddy was making attacks and things, he would say, "I'm, I'm going to leap over this table and and drop drop down on this thing," and you know, I'd like, and mostly it wouldn't work because he'd roll really 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 badly. But it's never just okay, so I hit it with Max. It's, I want to accomplish this thing. Like, for no reason, I'm going to draw my axe up really, really high and try and kick it in the balls. And it ended up not working because you had to make a check for it. But if it did work, that would be awesome. And and so you've, 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 you've got a lot of things you can do. The, the rules as written are not the end of the game. They are the start. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I understand. Cool. Um, well, let's talk about you then. Um and our our collective experience with um D D. Because you you you've played is it three point five? It was three point five, four and five that I've done all together. Cool. Um I I played basic. So the nineteen eighties red box, the Moldvay basic D D. Um I started I only started playing that about um year and a half ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um and I've played, that was the first thing I ever DM'd. I played, um, I've not played second edition or first edition, um, like the, the, the advanced Dungeons and Dragons stuff. I've yeah. not played those, but I have back when I was a kiddie that I would collect those books and read them. So I'm, I'm very familiar with them, but I never actually got to play it as a frustrated player. Mm. Um, I played 3.5. I think I played a, a short campaign of 3.5. Um, and then I stopped because the DM was a bit of an asshole. <laughs> um, and, and to be honest, I don't think I was kind of like mature enough to take the things that were happening. Um, Maybe. Um, I think my, my character got made a, a werewolf, got bitten and made a werewolf. And I was like, oh, I didn't roll a werewolf. I'm not playing that. And I'm like, that's it done. Um, but likewise, the DM didn't ask me if it was something I would be cool with. So yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I played oh. fourth a bit. I played a, I played a bard in fourth edition, mm. um, and in fifth edition I've only ever DM'd. So you, you've seen all of the the fifth edition that I've ever played. So. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, same with me. Um, you've seen all the fifth edition I've ever played. Yeah. When I started getting into D and D, it was with three point five, and um, the only reason I got into it was because I was living in a house share at the time, and the housemates were doing it. So that's sort of how I got into it. Right. Um and I rolled up like quite a simple character. I was just a half orc barbarian, so I was just smashing stuff. That's I a very it... cool house to move into. <laughs> she was called Baggy, I think, <laughs> and uh, she was just grotesquely ugly, but she had the most luscious blonde hair. <laughs> <laughs> I put her, I put her down as like the lowest level intelligence you can put yourself down as, while yeah. still being able to function. <laughs> I think I think people do that with 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 orc characters, they're like half orc characters, don't they? Just, or um, I think people like like playing a really dumb mm. character. Well, I don't know. It was because it was the first game I ever played, so I didn't want to overextend myself. <laughs> but like um, that group of friends, they still sort of bring up that character every so often because mm. it was she was um law um, good aligned. I yeah. can't remember 
specifically, but she fell in love with the evil character in the group, <laughs> um, an evil um, elf hmm. who was who was actually he turned out to be um, a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> I was chasing him around with roses and stuff. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, when Fourth Ed came out, we sort of translated our characters into the Fourth Ed system. Yeah. So what that resulted in was that my character just got so much more intelligent just overnight <laughs> with how the system transfer. That that was a bit of um, a thing with Fourth Edition is that the the numbers were so tight. It was such a very finely balanced game. You mm. couldn't be bad at things. You you could not be. You couldn't have a dump stat essentially. You couldn't just say, uh, I, "I want a four intelligence and I'll, I'll be illiterate and mute." Um, mm. You weren't. You literally were not allowed to do it. And so, but but I think you could just reflavor. I, I still it. sort of played it the same. I didn't yeah. really. It was it was just the stat that I ended up rolling for more than how I played the character. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's that's probably my biggest, well, not 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 my biggest, but one of my biggest issues with fourth edition is that it kind of skewed more towards the combat than the, than the characters, mm. and the characters became very secondary to combat. Um, and the I don't know. I liked it in a way because um, two of the people that we used to play with in this group, they were they were very about the math side of it, and they would always be they would try to power game, and they put all their stats into the way that they think was the best way to get a character. Yeah. So they'd be there and they'd they'd hit an enemy and the enemy would die straight away while us lot were just faffing about with <laughs> our, our like sharpened sticks and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think I think Forth had helped sort of decrease that a little bit and put us a bit more on a level playing field where it wasn't just Yeah. It wasn't just a case of some of us were playing it for the story and someone else came in and did their spell and that was the fight over yeah and i think i think that does again that goes back to table talk it goes back to everyone sits down and says what kind of game do you want to play mm. you know if you have those two people and said well we want a power game that's what we find fun then you go all right well fair enough is everyone happy with that and if everyone's happy with them power games say okay well we're gonna have to compromise a little bit by um you know as the dm or you know we'll, we'll, all, we'll all get together and we'll all build each other's characters a bit or those power gamers will help other people build their characters mm. otherwise you'll get that that disparity mm. so um you might say and you can flavor it how you like but like you just go okay I, I want the outsider background now because um that works with all of this but that's just mechanics mm. in terms of flavor it's going to be this so you don't you don't have to stick to the descriptions there you, mm-hmm. if you want a power game you, you choose whatever stats you want and you play whatever character you want mm. In, I I love story and being a bit outrageous. So as a as a character, I tend to play bards, or I tend to play um, uh, something with an element of what do you call it um, uh, of performance mm. about it. So like for I, I decided for my my bard in fourth edition, it was going to be a, a changeling bard. And then you say, well, changelings often try and keep themselves to themselves and don't want to advertise who they are because they get distrusted. Well, I thought, no, fuck that. I got the ability to change shape. I'm doing it every five minutes. So I had a table that I would roll on and that would determine what I was going to be that day. Male, female, um, race, you know, colour, all sorts of stuff. 
and just and that would be it. And um, I think I played another bard in third edition. It was um, a sort of power gamey bard. Bards are bards kind of go across the spectrum. They try and fill a lot of different roles. So you can't really power game a bard, but they're the skill monkeys. So I kind mm. of did it for that. So this is a skill monkey. Turned out that was completely the wrong character for that game. <laughs> utterly, <laughs> utterly wrong. But the DM didn't tell me. They said, oh yeah, that's that's a cool thing. You're going to die. <laughs> very, very quickly. Um, they should have said that. But yeah, um, that was Pathfinder, I think, actually. And, uh, it sort of coloured my view of Pathfinder a bit. Mm. But it was a properly outrageous known bard who sort of like, you know, would always introduce himself you know, like with a flourish and kind of like, hey, you know, he, you might know me. You've probably heard of me. It's no big deal, but it's a big deal. You know, um, and and properly go for like, you know, having epic rap, rap battles and, and doing um, things that I can't do. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, being, being more charismatic than I can be, but um, kind of railroading the game a bit. I think because I'm a mm. natural DM, I want to tell stories. Um, and at that point, I hadn't really learned when to shut up. So, <laughs> but I chose Basic Edition to DM because it's really light on rules. Because I'd had it for like, oh Christ, what now? Um, 25 years, maybe 20? No, 20 years, I reckon. More than that. No, 20 years was 15. Oh God. I was 15, 20 years. No, I was 13, 20 <laughs> years ago. Oh, that's rubbish. Sure. So, yeah. Uh, well, I'm 33. So, Christ, that's a long time ago. But so, yeah, like when I was like seven or eight, the so no, 20, 25, oh, Christ. Getting, oh, it's too many numbers. It's too many numbers. <laughs> so, uh, a long time ago, I, I had the basic edition, lost it, bought it again um, a few years ago and decided, right, I've had this thing. I've, I've been looking at it now on and off for uh, decades. I'm going to run this damn thing. So I did, um, mm. and I, I ran it for um, a friend I was working with, and it was his last day, and it was a Saturday, and we worked in a call centre, and it was the quietest day ever, and the boss gave us the go-ahead to play the game. So we just have to stop and like take a call, and then finish, and go back to this game. Um, and I ended up running it like that, you know, for you know for a couple of other groups of people, and um, mm. I ran the Keep on the Borderlands, like that really famous um uh basic edition module the the pre-generated adventure thing um that most people started with uh because again it was it's something I'd, I'd been looking at for for years and something i owned for for ages and never did anything with but no i'll i'll, I'll roll this because i was thinking well fourth edition i i, I might want to transition to fourth edition i might want to uh, and at that time D next as it was called fifth edition was being playtest and i thought well should i just wait i'll do something because like as you do when you first DM, it's like, oh, I'll run this game and it'll go for twenty years, um, which it doesn't. You know, games fall apart all the time, and you, yeah, know, you, yeah. should, you should be able to sort of like drop a game and you know um, when it's not working and stuff like that. It's because people have lives, you know what I mean? And or you might decide that the the venue you're in isn't working. It takes you six months to find another one or whatever. Um, and all the, all you know, the, all the players change over and whatever. So you just think, well, you know, let's let's put that aside. So you should always like not cling too hard to it. Mm. But um, you know, sometimes you'll have a game that'll just be nothing when you start and last for six years. But I wanted something that'd be easy to change over to. So I thought, right, well, this is really rules light. We can change it to anything. Everyone plays a vanilla character so that it can all it can all go over. And it turned out that was a good strategy because fifth edition 
um, everyone who who picked up fifth edition and go, oh, I love this. It's like it's like three point five again. It's like third edition. It's like like no 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 no. It's not like third edition because it's much simpler. It's much more like basic red box D and D. I was going to say the spell casting at least that's the thing that popped out of me that that I've been very streamlined. Like people who were playing made um, wizards and sorcerers, they weren't having to spend 20 minutes looking into their book every time they wanted to cast a spell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, the shorter descriptions, you know, and the yeah. uh, roll to hit, they get a saving throw. It's this. It's, it's all pretty much there. And and the, the cards that they came out with, um, they've got spell cards now that are done by a third party, uh, which I, I bought the whole set of. And they're really good to have in front of you. But the same idea, I think for second edition it was, uh, it came out in the middle of second edition, so it had taken them a good 15, 20 years to figure out that people wanted easier reference for spells. Mm. You know what I mean? And people were already doing they were already doing it like on, on index cards and writing it out themselves. And they tried to take that too far in fourth edition, everything was on a card, and it got rubbish, because <laughs> you end up just going, well, I'll just print all these out. Because you can't buy them because they were changing them too often. No, yeah. So you had to print them out, and you're like, "Well, do I print these out and then put them in a card sleeve, or do I, you know, print them out and just have them on a sheet, and then they're on a sheet, and then go people back to that same issue that you're talking about? Then, of like, oh, I'm just going to leave through all this." Well, when we played it, we we picked out some spells that we wanted, and mm. those were the ones we could do, and those are the ones we printed out. So we picked a couple, and then we never looked into the book again. Those were the spells that we could use. Yeah. Yeah, and people end up sort of doing that. Is there's there's a bewildering amount of information out there in these books, and the fifth edition is relatively new, but there's still a lot of information in there, and that's only going to get added to. I think very soon. I mean, we're recording in uh, the middle of March in 2015, so only the PHB is out for players. So players' handbook. That's the only players' book out there. But they're shortly going to publish. In fact, they just have published um, the, the free PDF. Player's Guide to the Elemental Evil campaign. It's got three new races in there. Um, the Elemental Touched uh, races. So you've got more options, and that's only going to get more and more and more as they publish more and more books to, you know, to keep making their money. Yeah. Um, so it's going to get absolutely insane. I mean, there's already more spells in there. There's more Elemental spells. Um, I think if you buy the print book, you'll have even more. So you're going to have all sorts of things from all over the place. So having five books with you is not going to work. So yeah, write down your own reference. You know, know how these things work. Um, I, I very much think you're going to be playing a, a wizard in the next game. That's Me? my prediction, yeah. Nah. <laughs> nah. I, I like my smashy smashy characters. <laughs> I, I, I think I think you'd do well with like, maybe a sword mage then. I, um, I played a goblin cleric once. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the thing is, you could play, you could play a spellcaster and still be smashy smashy. Yeah, I know you can play it like that. So. The first character I ever rolled up in and played in an actual game, um, in fact, no, maybe no, maybe the second, yeah, second character was a third edition sorcerer who had, um, and sorcerers are glass cannons. They're basically they don't wear much armor or any armor, and they don't hit very hard physically, but mm. they can throw spells around. And it's mostly mostly damaging spells. You're mostly the artillery, yeah. but you can't get hit. And I played a sorcerer with a repeating crossbow and a two-handed sword. 
the thought I'm not going to hit often, but when I do, I want it to to really like hit. Um, <laughs> and I I rolled nothing but twenties. You know, I was rolling the, the dice and decided this is how it's going to go. So it was like taking out a whole um, pack of werewolves by because I had no spells at all. First, you know, your first level you get nothing. Most D and D is characterized at first level you get bugger all. As yeah. a spellcaster, you have to rely on everyone else to protect you. Which is sort of taken care of in this edition. You get more to do. You get more cantrips that do things to sort of free spells, essentially. So I was... But in 3rd edition, it, free spells basically don't harm anything. So I was down to... I could cast light if I could touch something. And I had a two-handed sword and we were inside a building. It was just rubbish. And these yeah. werewolves were coming through the, the windows. And I ended up killing all these werewolves or making these werewolves die, basically. By whenever they'd come through a window, I would touch it, cast light on its nose, and therefore blind it. <laughs> and so everyone else got a free shot at it and sort of crit. Um, and would, you know, auto crit because they weren't able to dodge. Um, but that's, that is not how you operate a sorcerer at all. You know, that, that's not how you should do it. And yeah, that character should have died at that point. Should really have died. <laughs> But didn't, and in a, in a way, those are the more memorable characters. Yeah. So the characters who do things they're not supposed to. So your, you know, um, good aligned character. Um, alignment has sort of gone the way of the dodo. I think most people just yeah. use it as a handy reference, and that's it done. But back in the day, it had real mechanical uh, things. So in in basic edition, it gave you a language that only good people spoke. That's so weird. Like only good <laughs> people speak this language. And only evil people speak this language. It's just very, very strange. Mm-hmm. But a good aligned half-orc falling in love with an evil aligned character, that shouldn't happen, but it's memorable because it did. It <laughs> shouldn't have, you know. Terry, you going to say something? Um, I was going to say I hit a point with um, another character. I was still playing the um, the half-orc barbarian at this point. And um, one of my friends came in to, from university came in to try it, and we were both studying Spanish. Mm-hmm. And both our characters shared the la- the language giant, oh, and no yeah. one else had that, so we just used it to speak Spanish in front of everyone else. That's amazing, and that, and that really pissed everyone off. <laughs> like you would not believe how much that pissed everyone off. <laughs> I love that. I I I would I would, I would be giving. You're like, we want to know what you're saying. Like, Learn giant. <laughs> I would be giving inspiration left, right, and center. Dungeons and Dragons is owned and distributed by Wizards of the Coast. The song was Grind by John Paul Jones. Any questions, comments and feedback, please get in touch with us at swordnutradio at gmail.com. That's swordnutradio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And All for right. some reason, instead of the Dungeon Master's Guide for 5th edition, I got the 1st edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Wilderness Survival Guide out. <laughs> right, because I know a bunch about that. <laughs> <laughs> right, hang on a no, I, I only do that when... Uh, I, I only sort of keep things in and make people look an idiot when it's Mike. Okay. Because <laughs> he usually says something dumb but really funny and it says edit it out and it's funnier <laughs> just to leave it in going, no. <laughs> you're the uh-huh. only one that knows what you're on about. Don't ever say that. That's, that's, <laughs> it's utter, utter bollock. And I'm talking to people who aren't here, who are going to be listening to us in the future. <laughs> Hello, future people! I'm already being too wordy about this stuff. I've got a script. <laughs> <laughs> no, you you said you got a script. <laughs> yeah, like, this is not on it. <laughs>
I'll, 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 ho- I'll hopefully insert that back into the combat thing and not sound okay. like a douche. <laughs> okay. And cut! And we'll, we'll put that in and it sound like I wasn't a complete dickhead who forgot. Okay. <laughs> um, 